we are considered uneducated and fools if we are not social warriors. Furthermore, missions are considered to be socially transformative tools and the means through which we are changing, progressively changing the world and ushering in the kingdom. There's a lot in that statement. It is viewed as a methodology to change society, to bring about a change in social understanding and relationship rather than a means to progress the cause of Christ through gospel preaching. Evangelism, or I should say the Great Commission, has been replaced by social work, social awareness, and social justice. You can add into that social reform because that's part and parcel of that. Mission and evangelism and social outreach has become synonymous. When they say that we need to do outreach, it's more than just sharing the gospel. A lot of churches today consider social reform and refinement as part of the church's mission in this world. Yet none of these define the church's mission. None of them tell us exactly what God requires us, of us as a local and a global church. Another element that, that adds to the confusion of the mission of the church is the common language that is often used. Listen to this quote. The mission of the church is to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, end quote. I don't know, but if I read that prayer, it doesn't say that it is our duty. You know the, the Lord's prayer, right? I should say the disciples' prayer. Jesus says um, in Matthew 5, just there a moment ago. Matthew 6, I think it is. Matthew 6. <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that makes sense, right? The mission of the church is to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Does, is that what it says? No, it's a request. It's asking God to bring about His kingdom. Another way that the language has been so confused and convoluted is by means of this statement. <clears throat> Listen, quote, God's mission is to transform the world through the church, end quote. So it's God's plan to transform the world through the church. Interesting. It sounds right. So that's what gospel ministry does, right? It transforms the world. It does not. 
It changes lives. But the world, according to Paul, is getting what? Worse and worse. The transformation is of lives. The changing of society is not our work. Lastly, listen to this quote. The mission, quote, of the gospel is part of God's global social and culture transforming work, end quote. Do you see how <clears throat> the gospel has been wrapped into something that is focused on social change? <coughs> You'd be encouraged to know that these come of evangelical websites. None of these define or describe the mission that God gave the church. There are three primary passages that help us understand what the mission of the church is. And the first is in Matthew 28. It cannot be clearer. This is the very last command of Jesus Christ to his disciples and by implication to us as his church. Take note, it says, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So no one else has authority in heaven and on earth. Let that settle. The church has no authority on earth other than the delegated authority by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. Listen to what he says. All authority belongs to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, uh, to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. My authority goes with you as you fulfill this commission. The very last words of Jesus Christ becomes the first commission of the church. It is our work to be making disciples of all nations. What does that imply though? It doesn't mean that you, by yourselves, in and of yourselves, go out into the world and go and baptize and teach people independently of a local church. Implicit in this command is the structure, is the essence and the existence of the church of Jesus Christ. Because you make disciples by teaching and baptizing them. That takes place in the local church. How do they become disciples? By us going. Upon going, or as you go, is the participle effect there. As you go, or upon going, make disciples. By implication, they are getting saved. And as they are getting saved, they are being, being um, made part of the church uh, through teaching and baptism. And as you do this, know that I am with you. This is the commission. This is the mission. Jesus does not give us a, a commission to go and change society, to go and change the world. If the world changes, it is by His doing alone. 
Let me put it this way. There will be a drastic change in the day to come when Jesus establishes his kingdom. But the church will not usher that in. That belongs to the king alone. So firstly, the Great Commission is the mission of the church. And secondly, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Notice verse 14 and 15. Paul bereft from uh, Timothy and from the church in Ephesus. He says, at this stage, I hope to come to you, although by 2 Timothy, his plans have changed and he realizes he's going to die. But I am writing these things to you so that, and here's the purpose clause, so that, number one, you may know how one ought to behave himself in the household of God, the church of the living God. I may preach Timothy after James because I'm, I'm studying it now. And so there's just so much in here that I think would be helpful uh, to us. That you may know how one ought to behave himself in the household of God. So the book of Timothy or 2 Timothy is written to give the church an understanding of what church life and dynamic looks like. What is this church though? Notice how Paul defines the church. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Christ establishes the church not as a transformative power on earth, but as a monument to the truth. Note what it says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church must be a sounding board for the truth. Whether people want to hear it or do not want to hear it, we must remain faithful to the truth that God has given in His Word. Uncompromising the standard of holiness, the standard of truth, the um, deposit that has been grant, given to us over the ages. There are men like Andy Stanley who says that truth is not essential to the church any longer. He mentions his words by saying, you know what, you don't have to say that the Bible is authoritative. Just say that Paul says, or John says, or that Jesus believed this. The Christian world is in trouble. That is truthless, inoffensive form of a gospel that will not transform lives. It may tantalize the ears of false converts, but it will not transform lives. I say this quite frequently because I know that they are probably sensitive hearers online as they are sitting in the pews, in the, in the chairs. We don't have pews. 
And, and people get, this is a new word I heard, figured. <laughs> By things that I say, and, and I'm glad you are triggered. If you are offended by the fact that we are committed to defending the truth against false teachers, if you're triggered by that, I'm concerned about your soul salvation. The church by its very nature is to be the bulwark, the fortification, the palisade, the barricade of the truth. In other words, we will not give an inch on the truth. Regardless of what society does, regardless of what the government requires, we will stand for the truth. The church has been created not to redefine the truth, but to be faithful declarers of the truth. That is how you become a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We're not hiding it. We're not protecting it. The truth does not need the church to be protected. The church is the proclaimer, the sustainer, the supporter, the maintainer, and the declarer. I know that that doesn't fit, but you get the idea. Of the truth. So not only do we have a commission from Christ to be evangelistic, we also have a commission by our very existence, to be a supporter of the truth. And then thirdly, the church has been called to declare the glory of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> None of the points that I gave to you earlier on where people are saying that it's our duty to transform society, to be social warriors, you will not find a clear verse on all of those presumptions. There's nothing in scripture that causes us to be convinced that that is what God has called us to. You have to change meaning. You have to imply. But there are, this is only three, I'm only giving you three, there are clear expressions of what the church has been called to do look at verse 9 but you are a chosen race yes it is language used of israel <clears throat> but he's talking to those who are true jews and have been saved by the grace of god and he says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. Notice the purpose clause. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Let me say it this way. Jesus did not save you. So that you may have your best life now. Did not. The fullness of our life will be Christ our reward. Not in this life. My goodness, if you are getting your best life now. Jesus says of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That they have their reward now. 
I hope you're not part of those people. He did not call you so that you may have a personal private experience with Jesus in the closet of your house. But he called the church to as a corporate union and as private citizens of the kingdom to be unashamed in their proclamation of the beauty and the excellency and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ who is blessed forever. This is our duty. This is our call. In other words, there must be a deep devotion to the truth that results in a deafening declaration of the truth to a dying lost world. Just read the book of Acts. The truth didn't remain within the four quarters of the church. It was declared. Now what this means for us is that the church or healthy churches must understand the mandate of the Great Commission. This is an all-inclusive call from Christ, our Savior, to all the saints to go to the nations and preach the gospel. Now, at this stage, you may be wondering, how can I go to the nations? I'm not a missionary. And I'll get to that in a moment's time. Healthy churches not only understand this mandate, but actively participate in the advance of the gospel. In all three passages I uh, read to you, the emphasis is on the truth. Gospel preaching emphasizes the truth which will save lives. The church as a bulwark of the truth emphasizes the truth which changes and saves lives. The declaration of Jesus Christ, His beauty and His majesty emphasizes the truth which changes and saves lives. Concurrent in all of the things is the truth. But when we move from the truth to social justice, social care, and social awareness, we've abandoned the commission of the church. For these reasons, the church's mission is to magnify the glory of Christ by a faithful commitment to the truth and an undying devotion to see sinners reconciled to God through the gospel. That's my proposition, and that's what we will look at this morning. So this brings me to our present point in the sermon series. And I said to you from the get-go that I'm going to end up at a place where I'm going to encourage us to think in terms of being mission-minded, being a church planting or supporting church. There are two activities that a church can do to advance the gospel. So the main point, the category that I'm going to cover this morning, is that the church's duty is to advance the gospel. There are two ways that we can do that. Number one, the church can advance the gospel through personal support. And then secondly, through sacrificial sending. Now you thought I was going to say giving, right? But that's implicit in the first point. Through personal support 
and through sacrificial sending. And I know that our time is far gone because of the first hour, and so I will keep it to uh, an hour. And my, my sermon actually starts now. So just, I'm just joking for those sensitive hearers. Philippians chapter 1. As you turn there, we've already looked at the essential quality and the sanctity and the purity of the gospel in previous sermons. And I was going to cover that again as a foundation for the sermon, but I don't think it's necessary. The, the implication of having a gospel that is supposed to be uncompromised means that the church will not compromise and give a millimeter on the essence of the gospel. And so having said that in previous sermons, and I hope you get that point. I'm going to move on to the fact that the church must be pursuing, personally pursuing, to support the advance of the gospel. I was planning to do two examples, two churches' examples, um, as examples, which was the Philippian and the Thessalonian church. I think I'll just use the Philippian church as an example. So Philippians, in, in the book of Philippians, we find that Paul is writing to comfort these saints because they are concerned about him with regards to where he is. He is in prison at this moment. And now he is encouraging them, if you look at verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me <clears throat> has really served to advance the gospel. You can see where I'm getting my point from. It has served to advance the gospel. So he was sent or supported by this church to take the gospel to where the Philippian church cannot as individuals. Paul is a traveling missionary. And so they came alongside of him and provided him opportunity to go and preach the gospel. And now they are concerned, hang on, we supported you and we are concerned about you because you're in prison. So what's happening with the gospel? What's happening with the ministry? And it's interesting because Paul writes to them about this very thing. Take note in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I'm sure of this, that you has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul says to them, Yes, you are partakers or are supporters of me of gospel ministry and your participation includes both my imprisonment and the confirmation or the defense that I have of the gospel. Paul finds himself imprisoned and they are concerned about it. But Paul's mindset has changed, or I should say is changed. He doesn't see this as an impediment to gospel ministry. He doesn't see this as a problem to gospel ministry, regardless of the horrendous circumstances 
that he is in, being imprisoned, he says, you know what? Get this, that this has actually served to advance the gospel. The fact that I am imprisoned has worked out for the gospel to go out even more so. I love that. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel is not changed, chained, even though his people may be chained. Paul anticipates that he may be set free later on, but as he is there for the defense of the gospel, he's not silent for the gospel. And this, being in prison, sharing the gospel, takes the gospel even to Caesar's soldier. What a tremendous blessing Paul had to minister through the praetorian guard, the imperial guard, to the highest official in the land. Look at verse 13. And he says that the gospel has, um, so it really served uh, to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the imperial, throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that, that my imprisonment is for Christ. The word of God cannot be chained even though the carriers of the gospel can be. And Paul understands that. Listen, your support of me is good because the gospel is still advancing. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Consider what Paul says in verse 16. The latter, these guys who are um, preaching the, the gospel, just read verse 15. Some preach in, uh, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that i am put here for the defense of the gospel he's been imprisoned and what does he say i know that i was put here who put him there god did the, the fact that paul's imprisoned he understands that this is part and parcel of god's plan but i've been put here for the defense of the gospel and as he um, as he finds himself in prison he doesn't shut his mouth because he's in prison but continues to advance the gospel what a tremendous outlook of hardship of affliction god knew paul knew that god was going to advance the gospel despite his physical circumstances and often we use our physical circumstances to say well i can't be supportive of gospel ministry or I can't be a missionary in that country this is a tremendous testimony that Paul has a, a tremendous outlook that he has of God's absolute sovereignty over sovereignty over all circumstances even the fact that he was imprisoned for Christ. I'm still laying the foundation for my point. They were concerned for him, and so they sent him Epaphroditus, which you see in chapter 2, verse 27. Paul says, um, uh, 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, 
and your messenger and minister to my need. So they send him, Epaphroditus, to Paul, and he sends them back because he's concerned about them. So he obviously sends them with the message, sends the message with uh, Epaphroditus that they um, do not need to be worried about his circumstances and that the Lord has used it to advance the gospel. So clearly Paul cared for them as much as they cared for him. Now, I want to focus and zoom in on one element in the first part of chapter 1. And it is this, that the church advanced the gospel, the Philippian church advanced the gospel through their personal support of Paul. Notice what he says in verse 5. This goes back to, I thank my God. This is why he thanks God. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your partnership with me in gospel ministry from the first day until now. Listen, partnership in prayer is good. I'm not opposed to people praying for those who are in ministry and for missionaries. We must be praying missionaries but prayer also needs personal support i should say it this way those whom you are praying for also needs personal support this church understood that i'm sure that they prayed for him it doesn't say that in the text but i'm sure that they prayed for him but beyond that notice what he says your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now you continued to support me from the moment you were established as a church. You know, we think that it is important for churches to grow in its understanding of mission work. From the first day the Philippian church existed, they supported Paul. And they continued to support Paul. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. There was an occasion where they could not support him and they, this probably contributed to their concern for him. Notice what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived and that is not you've started up again. It's that the ability has been um, provided. Your concern for me, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity meaning you couldn't get the gift to me. And then he explains that they have provided, that he has received the gift from them. So it's not that they weren't supporting him, they just couldn't get the gift to him. And we don't know why that has taken place. But their desire never ceased to support him personally. The Philippian church shows us the importance of partnering with those who are in gospel ministry they continued to support him in gospel ministry now look at chapter 4 verse 14 notice how paul describes their partners their partnership with with him this is 14 through uh, to 18 yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble 
Partnering with them in gospel ministry is sharing with the person who is in gospel ministry. Not physically sharing, but sharing in their ministry. Secondly, look at verse 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, this is not when Jesus started preaching the gospel, is when they um, um, uh, received the gospel or the establishment of the Macedonian church. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The only church that demonstrated partnership in gospel ministry from the region of Macedonia was the Philippian church. Their partnership in gospel ministry was incessant. The only one that kept on giving and receiving was this church. Thirdly, their partnership in gospel ministry was a blessing to themselves. Notice what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Them personally investing in Paul's ministry was a blessing to them themselves. We often don't think about that. The, the idea of sowing and reaping has been stolen by the charismatic church. And Paul says that I'm not seeking the gift, but the fruit of your gift to me, which will be to yourself, is what I'm seeking. So keep on giving so that you can receive the benefit of your giving to me. And I with Paul am saying, I'm not seeking the gift. I think it is important to note that their partnership is seen as an ongoing ministry that they not only did for Paul, but also to themselves. And then lastly, the past partnership in, in uh, gospel ministry was seen as an act of worship. Look at verse 18. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Wow. Paul says, your partnership in gospel ministry through the personal support that you've demonstrated is an act of worship to God. Notice what he says at the end. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We love that verse, right? Everybody knows that verse. But how does Paul get to the fact that God will supply your need because you gave up your supply to my need. So God will provide fruit in your ministry. You see what he's saying? Again, charismatic church has stolen verse 19. Just give to the Lord and he will give to you. The church in Macedonia was a poor church. And Paul may not be thinking physical reward or physical fruit for this church, but he's thinking of the spiritual blessing and abundance that comes to them as they practically support him. He's not saying you give and God will give hundredfold back to you. That is not what he's talking about. He's saying that your investment, your spiritual investment through practical ministry will have a benefit to you as a local church. 
And that could be one of many things, but in my personal opinion here, yeah, and you can quote me on this, is that Paul is thinking of the spiritual blessing that will result in that church, that will be uh, a fruit of the, um, of the giving in that church. How do I know that? How do I know that God is going to continue to bless them? And I'm not thinking physical blessing, continue to bless their work. Because Paul actually alludes to this in chapter 1. It is good for us to talk about prayer and missions. It is good for us to be prayerful about the pastors of this church. It is good for us to um, contribute to the needs of the saints. But what Paul is talking, to, uh, talking about here is partnering with those who are in gospel ministry so that the gospel can advance. Unfortunately, churches in South Africa have been spoiled by mission work. Firstly, we've been spoiled because we are not paying the pastor. And so because of that, there's no real demand to make sacrifices because the missionary gets external support. Secondly, churches like that don't naturally think about church planting because they are not forced to make a sacrifice with regards to supporting a missionary or somebody to send out from their church. And if that church is able to support a missionary, it is generally uh, because of external funds. Another problem that is huge in the evangelical church is the idea that all we need to do is to pray. I'm praying for you, brother. Yeah, that, that is good, and I appreciate your prayers. But what about somebody that is struggling in Uganda? Prayers are going to help him to be sustained, but what is going to put food on his table? The saints. That's how God works. He's not going to give us manna from heaven as he did in the Old Testament. He uses people to help people. Another element that we forget is that this church demonstrated incessant ongoing support of Paul. I get that Paul, as he went from, if you read the book of Acts, he goes from church to church to the Gentile churches to help the Jerusalem church, which was in poverty. And so temporary support from external churches are acceptable. And we sometimes don't think in terms of how churches can help other churches. If, if there's a church that is in need or struggling because of a natural disaster, which was that's taken place in Jerusalem because of the, the drought that was there, Paul goes around and says, listen, we need to help them. And they do help them. So if there's maybe a church like, for instance, in Durban that got um, um, bad, um, badly influenced or... or That's uh, um, what I'm looking for. Affected, thank you, by the floods like we had early in the year. Why are churches so quiet on that issue? Unresponsive. Yes, we should be praying, but there's nothing wrong in saying there's a need. Let us step in and help in a short term, on a short term basis. 
That is part and parcel of advancing the gospel because in helping them, they can now use their resources somewhere else. Partnering in gospel ministry, in this case, was an ongoing demonstration of their understanding of advancing the gospel. Partnering, secondly, in the gospel has ongoing results. And this is why I think chapter 4 relates to the spiritual blessing rather than physical blessing. When we support somebody, you, even though you die, um, will impact others in your absence. Does it make sense? What you do while you are living in supporting someone, I'm not talking about pastoral ministry, I'm talking about mission work, evangelistic work. Um, in your support of the advance of the gospel, your investment in their lives has ongoing results, even though you are dead and gone. Now, this may be a little bit difficult to prove because how this verse is often understood. Now, I'm going to start... Look at verse 5 again by showing you the context. And I want you to see the context by yourself. Verse 5. Because of your... So I'm, I thank my God in all my prayers and the remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Okay, so just in those two verses that I read, what do you think Paul is talking about? Partnering and uh, partakers of gospel ministry, right? Because that's the two words he uses. Verse 5, because of your partnership and then he says you are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel so both relate to gospel ministry right okay so verse 6 and i am sure of this that you had begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ hey wait wait wait, wait. How do you go from partnership to uh, in, in advancing the gospel to eternal salvation? Because that's what it means, right? Verse 6, read it again. And I'm sure of this, that you had begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So often you will read in systematic theologies or in, in study Bibles that here Paul speaks about eternal salvation, that the work that God has begun, he will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to put a pin in that, and I want you to think about the temporal nature of what Paul is speaking about. Look back at verse 5. Because of your partnership from the first day until now. So you've been in partnership with me for a long period of time until now. Why? Because I'm living now, and I know that you've, you've supported me. I don't know what's going to happen next. And I am sure of this, that he would begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's an end, there's a temporal nature to what this good work is. There's a little bit of a technical problem here. Listen to how Phillips translates this. It's a translation. I feel sure that the one who has begun his good work in you will go on developing it until the day of Jesus Christ. Gives a slightly different nuance, right? Now listen to Wust, Kenneth Wust. Having become or having come to this uh, settled and firm persuasion concerning this very thing, you had begun a good work in you, a work. Uh, you had begun a work in you, uh, a work. Let me read it again. He had begun in you a work which is good, will bring it to a successful conclusion right up to the day of Christ Jesus. So that adds a little bit of a complication because it seems like there's an end to it. Right up to the day of Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Does salvation end when Jesus comes? Does salvation end when Jesus comes? So think salvation. Listen to this again. And I am sure of this, that you had begun, this work of salvation in you will bring it to an end at the day of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? No. It doesn't make sense. Because that's not the meaning of the verse. <gasps> really? That's not the meaning of the verse. Okay. So let me prove to you that Paul has the ongoing effect of your partnership in gospel ministry in view. Again, listen to the argument. Verse 5. Your partnership in the gospel... Verse 6, the work will be ongoing until, until a certain point. Verse 7, your participation or partaking of the ministry is ongoing. So let me read it again. The partnership has been ongoing until now. The work that God is doing will be ongoing until a certain point. Then verse 7, the partaking of your partaking in my ministry is ongoing. What's concurrent? It is ongoing until a certain point. That's what Paul is saying in these three verses. I thank God that you have, you have participated um, with me in gospel ministry until now. And I am sure that you are going to be partakers um, as you go on into the future. But what does verse 6 mean? The, the discussion is, what is this good work? What is the work that Paul mentions here? So verse 6, I am sure of this, that he had begun a good work in you. will bring it to completion. So if I can identify what this good work is, I'm sure that I'm able to convince you that Paul relates this to a specific work that God has done in this church. And here's my point. True gospel partnership will have long-lasting effects. How do I know that? The this, which is now... Um, Put before he has begun a work actually relates to this good work. I'm going to try to remember how I translated this from the text. Persuaded of this. Uh, persuaded. Um, of this work he has begun in you. He will bring it to culmination, completion, fulfillment, 
and end at the day of Jesus Christ. So some of you may say, but yeah, that doesn't really make sense. How can um, this verse, who's so often been used to speak of salvation, be speaking about a different thing? It's because of how systematic theology kind of influences our thinking. Contextually, what Paul is saying is that I am absolutely sure that the work that he has begun in you, that work, this work that he's talking about, what is this? He's talking about your partnership in gospel ministry. It's, it's pointing backwards. This work that he has begun in you, he will continue to work out this work until Jesus comes. That's the point. So your investment, your uh, participation in gospel ministry will continue to work itself out. Will continue to be a good work until the day of Jesus Christ. Now let me throw this bombshell. The gospel ministry that they are participating in will go on long after they are dead and gone, but ends when Jesus comes. Think about that. Gospel ministry will end when Jesus comes. Hmm. That throws a span into the works of some eschatological views. Because if we, if Jesus came, what are we doing? If he's come, then the culmination should already be, right? The demonstrative pronoun is indicative of the, the word this is the demonstrative pronoun. This points back to the partnership in gospel ministry. The context here tells you that it is gospel ministry. Verse 5, gospel ministry. Verse 7, gospel ministry. The uh, participation are temporal. Uh, you've helped me until now, and I'm sure that God will uh, continue the, the work that he has begun in you. This, this, this partner, partnership of gospel ministry will continue temporarily, in, in, until Jesus comes, because you are now currently partakers of this ministry. What does this mean? Since salvation is not temporal, since salvation has no end, salvation is ongoing. There are so many verses, uh, Hebrews, uh, for instance, uh, he has granted to us an eternal salvation. There is no culmination to salvation. There's a... Um, uh, perfection or a uh, um, it slips me the not sanctification the mm, yeah it will come to me <laughs> that word it 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 it's ultimately brought to its ultimate realization that's the word realization um, when Jesus comes but there's no end to salvation so then to say that I am sure that he has begun a good work is salvation then you have a problem with the idea of completion. It's not perfection, but end, to an ultimate end at the day of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? Your work of investing in gospel ministry will continue to be a good work until the day of Jesus Christ. Think about that. They may not live until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul may have understood that or may not have understood it. He expected Jesus to come back then and there. But he's saying that your investment, your participation in gospel ministry will continue to be a good work and will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Has the church died in Macedonia? By no means. We may be a, um, a result of that. There may be churches who are receiving the benefit of the Philippians church um, ministry with Paul in that he took the gospel to Rome and then spread it because I think he wanted to go to Spain after that. And then from there, it may have spread to Africa. We don't know. I'm presuming. Regardless, their work will be an ongoing ministry. It will be an ongoing good work and will, be, uh, will reach its climax or its end at the day of Jesus Christ. A simple way to answer this question of verse 6 is, will God bring salvation to an end? The answer is no. So then we can't apply that sense to verse 6 because the idea here is not perfection, but it's finality coming to an end. This makes sense in eschatology. It makes sense because when Jesus comes, what takes place? The rapture. Rapture takes place. What happens to the church? You may not believe that, but it's going to happen. Whether you believe it or not, he's taking the church out. What happens to gospel ministry? will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. See how it makes sense? It will only continue, your work will only continue up till that point. Well, because the church then is raptured and it is gone and a new era is ushered in, which now focuses on the nation of Israel. So in my mind, I think it makes absolutely perfect sense. And in the context of Philippians, that Paul is thinking of the ongoing nature of how God will reproduce your investment through others in the advancement of the gospel. Personal investment into people's lives have ongoing results, have ongoing effects. We should never think so limitedly uh, in a limited way that we are only investing into, into an individual. Your investment in the advancement of the gospel will keep on advancing, will keep on being a good work until Jesus Christ comes back. Another way of saying it is that God will continue his work that he began in you, this Philippian church, the investment, even though they are dead and gone. I think that's encouraging to hear. Now, let me end on this. My time is up. So firstly, churches must advance the gospel through personal support and then through sacrificial sending. I'm going to mention it. We can elaborated on uh, on Wednesday <clears throat> Timothy and Epaphroditus are Paul's closest companions at this stage and what do you do with those who are close to you you keep them with you why because they are a benefit to you you know what Paul does he sends them back to Philippi why because I have you in my heart, and they share my desire for you. So he sends them back. His best men were sent back. I wonder if Epaphroditus was the Philippians' best man, because they sent him to Paul. And Paul says, man, I love this guy. He's even, he's served even to the point of death. He nearly died here, and this guy's still around. 
That's the kind of investment you want in gospel ministry. And Paul says, I love him. And so because I love him, I'm willing to part with him because he's a benefit to ministry. And so I will send him back to you. Acts chapter 13. And you should know Acts chapter 13. Paul in Antioch. Um, who are the great icons in Antioch? Two of the great guys. You should know them. Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, right? Paul and Barnabas are the best people in Antioch. How do I know it? Because it's Paul and Barnabas. It's kind of obvious. I mean, you read about Barnabas, the, the encourager, and then Paul. The name says it all, right? It's Paul. So two of the best are at the church in Antioch. And God says, I've set them aside for ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that says, I've set them aside for ministry. Send them out. What does Antioch do? Let's pray about this. And they do. They do pray about it. And what do they do next? They send them out. The best men. You go and do ministry. Paul does return to Antioch because it's his home church. They, both of them, they do return to Antioch. And it's where their heart is. It's where their love is. It's where the saints um, that sent them out uh, are. And so Paul does return to them. But consider this. In both cases, both in Philippians and in Antioch, the best guys for the job are sent to do the job. Let me put it this way. Don't send the worst guy to do the job to do the job. Because you can't do anything else in church. So, you know what? Let's send him on a mission trip. Maybe you'll be helpful there. That's the worst thing you can do. You identify the best candidates for mission work. The best preachers for mission work. The best evangelists for mission work. And you send them out. Will that be a burden on the church? Yes. And you have to pray for somebody to replace that in the church. What is Paul saying? There's a sacrifice that takes place in mission work. There's a sacrifice that takes place in gospel ministry. Now I'm not setting you up for you to send Peter and Don elsewhere. Not at all. There are other great godly men in this church that can, number one, be sent to go and study, to further their education so that they can be better equipped to do the work of ministry. There are men who are great at evangelism, who are missions by heart, Missionaries by heart. We should come alongside and identify them and say, yeah, surely the, the Lord has set this guy aside for it. We don't have the Holy Spirit telling us, I've set them aside. We have to identify that and pray that this is the people that he has identified and then support them practically and send them out, even though they are our best guides. Mission work is a church wide passion if a church is, is is passionate about evangelism the very next logical thing to do is what send out missionaries if we are passionate about the lost the very next logical thing that takes place in the book of acts is they didn't just go and preach the gospel churches started because of that how are we going to advance the gospel See, the problem 
is not our socioeconomic status. Oftentimes people say, you know what, I'm too poor to contribute. Do a study on who the church of Philippi was. Do a study on the Thessalonians church. That's the other example. They were poor churches that gave out of their poverty to help poor. We should never think that we need an X amount and X amount in order before we can send a missionary out. What does Paul say? God will supply all your need. If there's a need for a missionary uh, support and we are busy planning to send a missionary out, what will God do? Provide the need. I think there needs to be a change in the culture in South Africa with regard to mission mindset and support. And you may say, you know what? We're just not as able to give because the states, they, they have a culture of giving or they, they give because of the, the rebates that they get. I beg to differ. I really beg to differ. We were at a church where the average age was maybe, what, 60? Slightly more, 70? These were pensioners. Pensioners don't have a lot of money. They took in interns every year, three years, well, four years, three to four years. They sent out men every three to four years. It's not about having a lot of resources. I can tell you, this church is not rich. But they understood their duty. They understood the importance of not only being evangelistic, but also supporting men who are able to do the work of ministry. It's a culture change. We do need to change our thinking in South Africa. Gospel ministry must be our priority, but it is not. This kind of thinking is foreign to the church in South Africa. Church planting is slowing down. Why? Because we don't have sermons like this. What is that uh, series that you sent to me from, what's your guy's name? Not Ray Comfort, Paul Washer, where he speaks about mission work and the importance of church planting. It's slowing down dramatically, yet mission giving has never been this high. Make sense of that. Because missionaries are not doing mission work. Africa is one of the most missionary-filled countries in the world. Where are they? Playing golf, I tell you. Often mission work is left up to the left because they have the resources. That's not a biblical model. Mission work can be started and funded by any church regardless of their socioeconomic states. Okay, I'm going to have to end on that. We advance the gospel by supporting men who are actively in ministry by, and sending, secondly, and sending out men who can do the work of ministry Question, why men? Because all missionaries in the Bible were men. Oh, that is so sexist. How dare you just limit it to men? Can women not be missionaries? No. Women can join mission work. They can aid in mission work. But they are not missionaries. Men have been called 
to do the work of ministry, missionary work. Why? Because they plant churches. They establish leaders, not women. A biblical church that does not abandon the Great Commission is a church that is passionate about the lost and also has its eye and pursuits on mission work. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your great blessing in providing ongoing work through gospel partnership, and we pray that you will continue to do so. We pray that the investment we make into the lives of individuals who faithfully go out and preach the gospel, who go out and plant churches, that we know that this work will continue on even until the day of Jesus Christ. And we are thankful to you for your ongoing work in this world. We are blessed to be part of it. We pray that you would bless us as a local church and change our perspective and our way of thinking with regards to mission work, with regards to support, with regards to how we give, that your work would be able to continue, that we would be actively pursuing the support uh, of the ad advancement of gospel ministry. We pray now, Lord, as your word has gone forth, as I bring this series to a conclusion, that you would use it and change the culture of this church, change the trajectory of this church, change the way that we think in this church, that you may be glorified and this church would be a blessing to others and receive the blessing that you give back through us. So we give thanks to you now, praying these things in Christ's name. Amen.